another episode of Top Lines and Tales, your weekly livestock podcast. And uh, as always, we'd like to thank our sponsors, Harbro, for their continued support. Top Lines and Tales likes to celebrate the life and work of great characters in livestock. And uh, it wouldn't be a greater character, really, than, than uh, a friend of mine, sadly no longer with us, uh, Donald Bigger. And uh, Donald was not only a character but from a dynasty of characters and a dynasty of great livestock breeders and i've got uh, on the call just now his son duncan and and hopefully uh, jamie gonna join us somewhere through this call i know jamie's busy uh, busy on the farm there but uh, duncan welcome to top lines and tales thanks andy and then um, thanks for your kind words i think um you know dad donald certainly a huge loss to us um, and i don't think we truly appreciated quite how, how far-reaching his influence had been on the industry um, until the sort of the, the mess just started appearing. Um, and, uh, yeah, you know, we are very much just trying to pick up the mantle and, and, and do what we can to, to continue that legacy. Uh-huh. And the legacy it is, and not just big shoes to fill from himself, but uh, from your father and your grandfather going back a long way, the, the bigger family. I've done podcasts on various breeds and, and, the, and the name bigger just pops up in in so many different places and uh it will maybe go back just to the beginning of it a little bit and as i said the the, the legacy the dynasty really of of uh, of the biggers really farming uh galloway cattle at at the grange there in uh in castle douglas and uh started in 1820 i believe yeah i think um brother james and i we are i think the, the sixth generation at uh, of figures at, at grange and chapleton um I mean, I, I don't. There's no. There's no record of when the first Galloways, or, or when we started breeding the first Galloways. Um, it's sort of just assumed to have been um, since since we came to Grange. Um, but they certainly featured in the first herd book, and I think every herd book um, through until 2001. Certainly, I think that they, having studied the Galloways a little bit, there was a lot of Galloways in that area going back hundreds of years before a herd book was eventually formed. And as you said, uh, you know, I, well, I think the early 1800s certainly um, there and uh, instrumental in the Galloway breed uh, from from day one, really, or from when the, when the, the herd book started, certainly. Yeah, I mean, my sort of my understanding of it doesn't doesn't go really much beyond the the 80s really and the and the sort of boom time that came with the the, the, the sort of german export market that was probably my first real um understanding of, of the galloways but you know in the in the, the years or the, the decades before that um you know the, their ability just just to, to spend 365 days a year outside in a, in a pretty wet climate and, and give us a cab you know obviously served um you know obviously served five generations of our family pretty well and um and and you know we were i think probably privileged to be um to, to be involved with them for such a long period indeed and, and top lines and tales my podcasts all started uh, after sadly we lost jack ramsey uh died at a young age and then uh, himself and your father donald were my go-to men for a lot of information and, and sadly a lot of that information has been lost and that's one of the reasons we started this podcast is to try and record what we can and 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 remember and find out what we can and and if we go back to the beginning of your family that i know it anyway we'll go back to uh, walter bigger and uh, walter was a, a cattle exporter and, and a man of some standing and, and a big family too yeah, I think um, 
My understanding is that, that Walter would be a tenant at Grange and then buy the farm in about 1920. Um, that would be, I, I think, seven or eight years after uh, my grandfather James or our grandfather James was born um, and uh, they obviously farmed away there for for, um, for years but I think he was quite heavily involved or hugely heavily involved in, in both import and exports um, and seemed to, to spend a huge amount of time uh, judging cattle overseas which um, you know, obviously grandfather James he went on to do that and, and dad Donald as well so um, you know, there's a there's a, a sort of great legacy of of the family, or, or, or cattle breeding, having taken the family around the world, and and um, you know these are great opportunities to 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 get away to far flung corners that you know even today seem like a long way away, but but when you're to cross the Atlantic on a ship, I'm sure um, I'm sure it seemed even more sort of further afield. And, and he didn't just do that, uh, Walter, and I've studied a, a wee bit of this. He judged the Chicago, which probably Chicago show, I would say, would be the American equivalent of our Royal Highland and Royal Smithfield, a, a, a fantastic exhibition. And he judged uh, the steers at Chicago in, first in 1921, and then he was invited back. So this shows the measure of the man. He was invited back to judge Chicago 13 times, and nobody's been anywhere near that within the, the ever since really people have judged it more than once but uh, 13 times is a huge a huge accolade to uh, to go back and, and and keep repeating that job as you said traveling across originally by by ship yeah it's it you know it was long or growing up it was a sort of legend in the family that um that the great grandpa had uh, had been away to, to judge this far-flung event and um, 13 times and uh, and then of course it was inaugurated into the, the Saddle and Sirloin Club I, I'm afraid, I, I don't know when that was um, but uh, the, the, this portrait I think as you say hung hung in the Saddle and Sirloin Club for, for years before it then I think moved to Louisville where it is now and um, you know it's, that's very much something that, that I think you know James and I should probably do at some point is, is go and see it um, because it's you know it's a it's a bit of family history. Absolutely, it's, and it's more than a family history. It's a history of Great Britain. I think there's not many British people that hang in the prestigious Saddle and Sirloin Club, and it is a prestigious club, really. It's very certainly he was one of the very few Scots people in there, and 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 that's yeah, that's a huge accolade, as you say. And I've got a, f a few. <clears throat> it's difficult to research, but I found a few things on him. And in 1933, I don't know how many times he was into judging his uh, that event by that time, whether he judged them all consecutively, but he put up a, a, a calf or a steer called Bracliff Model uh, in 1933. And uh, that was the only animal there to win it twice, an animal that had won the year before, whether he judged the year before, I'm not sure, but he came back and put it up for the, the second time. And for his steer show, that's we all know that's a that's a huge accolade. And uh, yeah, you, you'd be ballsy to do that, I think. Yeah, I mean, if, if, if he put it up one year, then uh, you know, it was, it was maybe just uh, looking after himself by putting it up a year later. But um yeah, I mean, even even to, I mean, I did have a quick look. I think it, it it's somewhere in the region of three or four days um, at, at full speed to cross the Atlantic, um, and uh, you know, I think you know, like context as well that you know, Titanic went down in in 1912, um, so that that's the kind of era that we're talking about yeah. um, of of crossing the Atlantic, not without peril. So, um, and his, his wife was obviously quite happy for him to do it, whether she had any sort of. Um, 
any sort of input into those decisions or not. Whether she went with him or stayed at home and did the work, who knows? And and uh, <coughs> at that particular event, it's uh, it's stated that where I read anyway, there were thirteen and a half thousand animals anyway. I'm not sure whether they were all cattle, and there were forty five thousand spectators. So we're not just talking a garden fete here. This is a, a mammoth show, and 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 still is renowned as one of the biggest shows that ever was in America, and and, and still to this day, Louisville is one of the biggest shows in the world. Yeah, I think, it, it, you know, we've only grown up knowing a, a big class of a show to, to be, you know, 20, 25 animals, sometimes a few more, but it it sort of is beyond our understanding, really, the notion that, that you'd have these uh, shows and sales for thousands and thousands of animals and, and, and even more spectators. That's a, a sort of golden era that, that or, or maybe not a golden era, but it's, a, it's an era that's passed, certainly, and... Um, you know, as I say, now, if you get a few hundred people around a ring, then, then there's a bit of a buzz. I can't imagine what it was like when they were all standing with them, um, you know, with, with their hats on and such like, as, as they would have been, top hats would have been uh, in the early 1900s. They would, would would have been, and of course it would go on to be a national televised event as, as the show went on into the 50s and the 60s, and moving on to the 50s and 60s. Walter's father, I believe, was James, and, and I think I said he was one of... 16 children we spoke and of course then his son uh would be the oldest son i suppose again would be james and that would be your your grandfather yeah so so there's a, there's a, a sort of history of of uh you know father james naming firstborn walter naming uh firstborn james as it were so there's plenty of scope for confusion and um, but yeah, uh, grandfather James, he was one of uh, he was one of four, and Walter was one of uh, I think it was I think it was sixteen. Not not all of them made it through uh, made it through childhood or infancy, but um, you know a big a big family, and um, you know the, quite a few of them headed down south, a few headed across uh, across to the, the states or Canada, um, and uh, yeah, every now and again uh, people sort of pop up from. From the far corners who have, who've started out uh, started out in the southwest Scotland. Yeah, brilliant, brilliant, and it is fantastic to think with that many numbers as well. There would be populations of these of your ancestors in, in all over the world, and, and that's fantastic. Well, let's go on to your grandfather James and uh, James. A lot of the listeners on this podcast will remember uh, um, Jim Bigger, one of the top cattlemen of his generation, if not the top cattleman and he chaired meetings and, and was presidents of societies and a, a massively diplomatic man wasn't he born in in 1912 and and, and he would have traveled with the cattle as well yeah i think um you know, he he would have quite a, a, a different existence to his father and, and indeed to, to to my father and um, in just in the respect that, that he was uh, he was farming through the through the war really um, he would just be a boy in the first war, and then in the second war, um, as, as the eldest son, he was a member of the Home Guard, I suppose. Um, but he did uh, he did manage to get abroad, judged a fair bit, I think, in South America and, and Australia, um, and uh, he really drove the, the or was heavily involved in the the Hereford herd that we had, and um, you know that was that was probably the, the sort of real heyday of that for us was was under um you know his and then his and, and dad's leadership together um you know obviously we obviously lost grandpa uh, i think it was about 2004 um but but yeah he um you know had a, a huge interest and focus much as, as 
as dad did in commercial cattle and i think you know, that's the one of the sort of key focuses that the family's never lost is that you know the the, the beef animal is is what you're what you're uh, you're breeding and the and the beef industry is what you're you're trying to contribute towards and um the sort of raw fundamentals of producing beef have, have never been very far from the the or, or I would say have probably always been the primary focus of the of the breeding philosophy. However it's it's sort of however it's adapted to a particular trend or, or, or market need at the at the time. And, and, and a man who would, who would move things forward and see the future and move things forward as he did in, you know, in the Galloways, of course, he was chairman and president, and, uh, and he was uh, the only one, certainly within the last good while anyway, to win Royal Smithfield show, which I know he was involved in, but the Royal, win Royal Smithfield show with a pure Galloway beast, and I think that was in 1964, and, and I'm told that was a great beast. Was that Chapleton Sovereign? I think it really was. There's a picture of him at home, um, and he was always sort of held out to be the, you know, one of the greatest successes, as they say, uh, you know, a, a, a steer, a, a commercial animal winning, um, winning a show, and there was always there was always such a buzz about Smithfield and a real sort of country comes to town type atmosphere that um, you know I, I was I was only ever there once as a, as a boy as it were but uh, but I, I know certainly Dad loved it and um, and, and Grandpa James he was obviously quite heavily involved as well so it, it's a, it's a it's a pity that we've lost it um, but you know it was it was so nice to have been and, and seen it once. Um, even if I wasn't quite old enough to enjoy some of the shenanigans that, that would go on, I'm sure. Well, your father and I certainly did enjoy some of those shenanigans together and where we became friends. But going back to to your grandfather, as I said, he you know, he he judged it there and and, uh, and he was very much in, in the top end of the Royal Smithfield Show when the Smithfield Show needed that guidance. And and, and, and your grandfather, James, in, in many meetings, I've seen it said that he would sit there and... and speak when he when he needed to speak and what he said would people sat and listened and i think that's a lot of the again our listeners here will remember uh, james for that because uh, he he was a man that uh, everybody looked up to with with awe yeah i think you know he and dad probably shared that that um the way in which they sort of sat and took in what people were saying and and, and then sort of offered a, a fairly brief comment that that settled um, sort of almost settled the, the discussion, and um, yeah, not not a man of, of huge words, uh, but um, but what he did say was typically worth worth listening to, and um, yeah, you know, even even post suit and marriage, he was you know was quite heavily involved in uh, in deciding you know which animals should be should be kept from the embryo program. There was a, a story about him and uh, and. Being in a, a field of shorthorn calves or well embryo calves uh, as they were, and um, you know somebody sort of suggested, oh, you know, which one's the best one? And he said, oh, they're all good, but um, but I think oh, we're going to keep that one over there, and and pointed at an animal that uh, Chapson Typhoon that that would go on to sire I think five or six Perth champions. So, um, you know, a, a, a true cattleman. Um, right, right until the, the very end, as it were. And, and as I said, sadly, we lost your, your, your father, age 68, in you know, 2021, so it's a couple of years ago just now. But having sat 
with your father and spoke with your father and him leveling a few disputes before that I, I was involved in personally with him, which I won't go into detail for uh, diplomatic reasons, but a diplomat he was. And, and uh, as you said, he could he could sort an argument out, <laughs> I'm sure you as, as children, um, uh, squabbling between yourselves, he, he could uh, he could sort an argument out with a few words and, the, and, 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 and you could never question it. Yeah, I, I think, um, you know... Everybody listening um, will be more than aware that, that breed societies and any societies any description there, there can be disagreements and you know the the whole the whole point of 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 showing and breeding is that you you pick what you're looking for and, and you work towards it and um, you know that that inevitably gives rise to, to, to tension in certain places and uh, it's not to say that anybody's right wrong uh, or, or otherwise but um, you know sometimes when you just needed some sort of cohesion and, and some sort of pathway. Forwards, um, you know, through through various different sort of philosophies and mindsets, he seemed to sort of be able to, to tread a, a, a find a path through that. Um, you know, people seem to to, to to really admire that ability, and in, in, certainly in, in dad. And as you say, you know, many have suggested that grandfather had the had the same ability. So, um, yeah, indeed, as a as a as a child, you um, you knew where you stood without without any sort of uh, without any sort of raised voice. It was uh, it was clear that um, you knew where things stood. I remember thinking your father would have made a great prime minister, and I know politics wasn't he wasn't he wasn't going to go that deep into politics, but uh, we could do with a lot more politicians that had the ability that he he did have to uh, to to see both sides of the argument and then know which way to to uh, to turn people to make. Uh, to make the right decisions. And I'm just going to pop back a little bit to your, your grandfather, James. I was looking through some um, old records just recently from the Scottish Farmer yearbooks, which I've just acquired, which I'm quite pleased with. And uh, I didn't realise that there were Ayrshire's there as well at, uh, at Chapleton. And uh, and your grandfather, James, was big man in the Ayrshire cattle as well. Yeah, that's a, that's a sort of chapter of history that, that's not, you know, was never really frequently talked about. I think... Um, I think primarily because Dad was, in straightforward terms, just not not really interested in milking cows. But I think it was in the sixties or, or um, maybe even the seventies that um, the sort of milk quota uh, system was appearing on the horizon and coming in, um, and the sort of real modernisation of of the dairy sector was beginning and. Uh, it was. It was just. It wasn't where. It wasn't where anybody in the family's heart lay, as it were. And um, you know, versus, certainly versus beef cattle. And um, the decision w- was taken to. Um, to. Uh, I mean, it, it must have been a dispersal of some description, um, if if they'd been pedigree. But um, as I say, it's not really ever. That's not something that's ever really come up. Okay. So. Okay. And let's move move on to a breed that he's probably more known with now and was renowned with back then, as was his father, was uh, Shorthorns. And I think you, start, you set Shorthorns on first at uh, Chapleton in 1942, I believe. I think it tied in with um, interest in the breed and, and, and perhaps even orders coming from overseas or to check around it. Um, I think that the, the general consensus was that uh, Walter was bringing cattle or importing cattle under order or, or receiving orders to import cattle and um, it, it, the sort of penny dropped he just wondered why he wasn't breeding them himself in the in the UK so um, we, we got started with a, a, 
a shorthorn herd that, that grew and grew and uh, and as always we've still um, still got shorthorn cows that grazing Chaveldon today. We'll go in, in into the short the loss of the short ones and, and the start of them again, but I will go back and mention one bull, Chaveldon Crusader, who uh, it, looking again back through the records there was a bull that made a lot of impact in the and, and our short ones enthusiasts here will 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 concur that made a lot of impact into the short horn breed. So it wasn't just breeding them, but breeding breeding the right ones, wasn't it? Yeah, and I think there was also um, there's also a period when you know because of the the international connections that the family had, uh, they were you know very happy to to look further afield for animals long before the the days of, of AI and being able to to or, or embryo transplants and being able to bring genetics across the pond or or, or take them around the world easily. But they were very happy to to go out and uh, and, and bring bulls from far afield. Uh, and bring those new genetics into the country, and I think that 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 sort of um, being content and being happy to do that and go out and find these bulls was probably a, a, a huge influence in it, certainly in our herd because we, we were pulling in totally totally fresh genetics each time a a, a bull appeared. Yeah. Yeah, and of course, he said, I wouldn't say it's easy, but I mean, it would be a picnic compared to what the guys had to do years in the past where they got to bring live animals backwards and forwards when, when the embryo transfer and that came in. Let's just go back to uh, to your father then. He was schooled at Merkiston and um, and he would have travelled to South America, I, I know, because I spoke to Jim Donald. Sadly, Jim's away now, but uh, Jim Donald telling me that uh, I remember seeing him, uh, helping him bring out uh, short-on bulls in Brazil when he was a young man. and, and, and and he also, um, uh, your father worked with uh, exporting polo ponies. I don't know quite how he got into that ticket. Yeah, so the the, the, the polo pony story, um, I, I don't know. I, I don't know how he got into it, as you say, but it it was a method of of uh, getting around the world essentially for nothing. Um, the the polo ponies, uh, you, you needed a person for every two polo ponies to to stand and hold one in each hand uh, for takeoff and landing. And um, he somehow got himself in the, in the jump seat, as it were, as as one of the, I suppose they were, I suppose they were grooms, really. Um, and uh, for the, you know, for the princely price of, of standing, holding two ponies uh, for probably maybe 20 minutes at each end of a flight, um, you got yourself, you got yourself across the pond for nothing. So that's where the, the polo ponies story was. Um, but it was really just a, a, a method of getting himself to some uh, some carries on the other side of the world, and um, it, it, I mean, it seemed to be quite it seemed to be quite effective. And <laughs> he got a free ticket round the world. Was, was he into his horses? Is he was he Don Leverstroke was a horseman? I know your, your sister. Maybe she had horses. Did you have horses as youngsters? Uh, we my sister Rachel had a had a pony, but you know it's interesting. It's, it brings to mind a uh, uh, time only. Well, I mean, I say only a few years ago, but it was probably probably a decade ago, um, when Dad and I were actually we were both at Limerick Show in Ireland, and um, Dad was judging the the Anguses, and they went on until I don't know, sort of midday, one o'clock or something, and um, we were we were wandering around uh, the rest of the show, and and of course, being an Irish show, the the horses dwarfed uh, dwarfed the cattle, and um, you you watch a few classes and. Uh, you know, you could see he was beginning to get his eye in to, to, to what the, the judge was looking for. And, um, you know, it was by no means a, a, an expert, but by the time he'd watched two or three classes, he was able to pick out what was going to fall 
pretty close to the, the money. And um, I think it's just that ability to, to look at an animal of any description and know if it's know if it's if it's walking soundly or if its its structure uh, looks to, to be in order. Um, and you know that's I think you know, when you begin to wonder if there is some sort of innate ability to to just pick an animal that. Um, that, that looks as if it's it's functional. I don't I don't think that's a mystery. I think that that's the the measure of all great breeders. And uh, I don't say I'm a great breeder, but I like to watch Crufts sometimes when it's on. And you think, well, you can see dogs running around the ring and see the same thing. There is the if you have an eye for for livestock, then yes, you can turn to to different species. And 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 I'm sure I'm sure he was able to do that. And and some of that grounding there. Is, but as I said, he he would have travelled with bulls to. Uh, to South America, whether he travelled on the boat, I never we never had that conversation. Whether he travelled on the boat with animals, but certainly spent quite a lot of time in a native Argentina there, uh, and uh, would have learnt a lot down there. Yeah, yeah, and I think Australia as well. Um, you know, the, the, there was a huge number of Herefords in Australia for a long time. I think that the Angus have really probably um, t- you know, taken a hit in, in favour of the Angus over there, but there were a huge number of, of Herefords there, and. Um, you know, a, a huge number of, of great stories. There's, there's a, a road map of Australia at home uh, that, that's that got various herds marked on it um, in Dad's handwriting. He was, he was, whether he was sent with a list of people to go and see, or, or these were just the sort of waypoints on on the way round. Um, you know, the the, the, the mission to, to to anywhere far flung was invariably backed by the, the desire to go and see cattle out there. So, um, you know that that's you know. I think a measure of someone who lives and breathes cattle breeding. Indeed, indeed. I remember him and I ch- used to chat because Smithfield show used to be December, and we'd always chat about where we were going skiing the following year. And I think you guys were all skiers as well. And uh, and he'd up into the Alps, and he'd still say, "Well, when he's up there and skiing in the Alps, he'd still be looking out for some of the Simmetals and the Salur cattle that were going round about there." It was all, cattle were always in the front of his mind somewhere. Yeah, yeah, and you know, as you say, the the you know, always looking out for for what was there. The you know, the the reason we ended up. Um, skiing in the village that that we do um, was the, through the the surgeons of the Galloways in Germany and Austria, and we sort of struck up or he struck up a, a friendship with an uh, Austrian lawyer in Salzburg, and, um, and and that had sort of suggested where maybe where should we go skiing, and uh, this gentleman said uh, I've got a I've got a house, so the family has a house in this village, so you, you should go here. And, uh, and Dad said, oh, well, this is when we're thinking of going. And, uh, and he said, oh, well, the, the first half, oh, my, my, or the first half, that, that's fine. Um, but th- those last couple of days, my sister wants it then. So let's just go another mile and a half up the valley. And uh, my friend's got a hotel there. And uh, 30 years later, we're pretty much still going to the same hotel. So, um, you know, these are, these are the way that, the, or these are the ways that the, the, sort of the global community of, of cattle breeding um, can uh, can establish connections that, that last lifetimes and generations. I, I totally get the, the, the cattle thing, but I also get knowing, knowing your father as I did that uh, he could stripe up a friendship with a traffic warden if he thought he was going to give him a ticket to. So the man that would, would, would get the best out of the right people when at, at the right time. So, uh, yeah, fantastic achievement. And 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 move on to well, go back to the Galloways, I suppose. That, that, um, you talk about the Galloways and the Galloway... Uh, cattle breed through the 90s started becoming, as you said, b- yeah, particularly in demand from the the Germans and the Austrians who were trying to get them out there into the hills, and and the and the price of a Galloway went up from being 
commercial price to being 10 times that price, as did the Highlanders during that time, and that really opened a, a lot of doors uh, for the breed. And, and again, your, your dad was, and your grandfather, I say, would be very instrumental in driving that, that export market. Yeah, I think, um, you know, n never, they were never shy to, 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 sh to, to sort of leave an opportunity begging. And um, I think, you know, I think well, Grandpa could could well have been a, a chairman of the Gaga Society during at least some of the periods when when the the, the German export market and Austrian export market was was on fire, and um, you know certainly would would have seen that as a huge opportunity for the breed and would have made sure that the breed collectively didn't didn't miss it. And um, you know the the I think one of the the best things really about that the reason it was such a huge opportunity for the breed was because it was external external money or, or i suppose external deutschmarks coming coming into the breed instead of uh, the, the same pounds going around in a circle it was it was a real injection and i think these are the sort of opportunities that that neither grandpa nor nor dad uh, you know, would, would would allow our breeds to, to miss um because they you know as we all know the, these things only last for for a couple of years, maybe a decade, if you're lucky, and um, and if you miss them, there's no, there's nothing to say that it'll come back again. Sure, and that and that, that market did fall apart, of course, when the BSE came in in the 90s. But going the cattle the other way as well, as you said, your your grandfather, great grandfather, weren't frightened to import, and, and your father the same. And uh, he he started bringing passionate that he was about Hereford cattle. Started bringing a few uh, of the Canadian Hereford cattle back in. This is at the time when Angus and and, and Shorton cattle were maybe coming in from Canada as well. When we're talking about the the frame race, when we're trying to get cattle bigger, and and your father brought in a uh, a Canadian Hereford bull and then took it as he would do to the Royal Show and won the interbreed, interbreed with that, I think, in 1988. And, and, uh, and, a, and a great beast it was, I remember it. Is that, um, is that a lot of sensation? Yeah. yeah. It was a, a picture picture of him uh, still in the office today. And, um, you know, I think a lot of people reckon he was one of the, one of the best herbers they ever saw. Um, and, you know, we certainly can't take any credit for reading him, but... Uh, yeah, he, he seemed to be, um, well, from the photographs I've seen, he seemed to be a, a, a fair unit. Yeah. So, as I said, you're not frightened to bring in, in the, the top genetics and, and see the, the, the changes that we needed. And, and like a lot of great breeders of that time, the Tom Brewis and, and, and likes of, of, that, uh, of that time, your father and your grandfather, of course, would see that the, you know, the, the cattle needed to change. And, and, uh, and Hereford's became... Uh, Heifers became a, a, a huge part of Chapter for, for quite a while, and, and there would still be a lot of people in the the Hereford breed that would still have Chapter and Hereford genetics uh, uh, going about. Yeah, as you say, you know the the that race for that race for an increased size. You know, we spent probably a couple of decades trying to make animals smaller, and then there was a sudden rush to make them bigger. And actually, to to be at the races relative to to the continentals that were beginning to come in and um yeah i think we we as a as a as a national industry or a national breed had, had probably bred the size uh, you know to, to a point whereby there wasn't maybe not enough variation to to move quickly and i think that confidence to to go out and find genetics wherever they were in the world that, that was going to help us get back to a, a frame size that was going to compete with a continental um you know that was a, a huge benefit to, to us really and to our head of that that 
being you know being content to to go across the the pond and and, and bring the bull back. Mm-hmm. And 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 at the time when the 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 continental genetics were coming in, the Charolais and, and, and your, your neighbours and family for that matter, your, uh, Goldies and such like, we're, we're starting to take the world by storm with their continentals. Um, you, you, the Chapleton never never succumbed into the, the continental breeds at all. We did run a, a couple of continental bulls in the, the commercial herd and, um, you know, we, we, we've always run, uh, you know, quite a, a decent or significant number of commercial cows and, and we still do to this day and they're, they're always Almost entirely bred from from Chapleton genetics, uh, but uh, you know, post foot and mouth, the, the the sort of rush to get calves on the ground, there were a couple of uh, continental bulls running around, and, and I think I'm not entirely sure, but there's a, there's a reasonable chance that they that they came from from the Goldies at, at Town Foot and uh, and South for Houses, and indeed and indeed some of the cows. Um, quite a lot of the donor cows came from uh, from Thin and Gowan and. Uh, and uh, I mean, some of them were were uh, synchronised, or, or um, we had embryos implanted up there uh, before before we could get cattle back on the farm, post foot and mouth. So you know that breeding program was the wheels were in motion before we were uh, before we ever had hoofs on the ground. Okay, and we'll go into the foot and mouth in in a second because uh, it, that was a sad time for you. But it's sort of going back, my my involvement of of knowing your father Donald was at, uh, at Smithfield. I think the first time. One of the first times when I was early showing cattle down there, he was he was judging that, and he'd be a fairly young man, and and he he, he took in the Smithfield mantle, and certainly went on to become um, the, the the chairman of Smithfield as well as well as judging it, and, and but he judged a lot of cattle. Uh, your father got into to judging a lot of cattle, obviously just purely uh, by his. his uh, I say a lot of interbreeds, I suppose, by the fact that he had uh, he such a diversity of knowledge in, in a lot of breeds, and, and he wouldn't be away from putting continental cattle up. It would be looking for the best animals, which is probably what we said about the ponies. Yeah, yeah, I think that, you know, it, it comes back to this this sort of um, constant focus on, on, on what was going to be the best beef animal, and... Um, there was no particular breed bias when you're when you're when you're looking at uh, when you're looking at a, a, an interbreed um, lineup, and um, you know the, the the best one there has to win in his eyes, and there was there was certainly no consideration for what your favourite might be, and um, I think that you know that integrity is is something that um, you know he, he was hugely proud of, and um, you know through his whether it was his breeding or those he'd sold, um, or indeed his sort of time with a, a shirt and a tie on, whether that was it QMS or, or involvement with, with NFU or, or NFUS. Um, you know, that integrity, as I say, whether it was a, a goal sold or, or, or a meeting or or anything else for that matter was, was hugely important to him and, and was never something he would, he would ever cast any doubt on. No, no, absolutely right. To, to, to keep an open mind, I think, is probably the word we're looking at. And as I said, when we were at Smithfield, he, he was my boss. He was chairman, I think, when I, I first uh, joined the Smithfield Council. And uh, yeah, he'd been the chief steward as well. And his fantastic software, he had a dealing with things. I eventually went on to become a steward myself. And, and the way he could just sort of level situations. And there were a couple of situations that I, that I, I can remember, which I won't um go into to detail with where he he, he dealt with those things uh, um, so succinctly it was just superb and, and while I was in his company 
We were at a meeting in London for some strange reason. Uh, your father and, and a few of the other council members were heading off to the Paris show, maybe to have a look uh, and, and see if we can learn anything from the from the great show that's there in, in Paris. And uh, I was only at the meeting for the day in London, and then your father managed to persuade me to, to join them on a trip to, to Paris. And before I knew where it was, I was uh, we'd, we'd all got drunk, and I'd slept the night on the floor in his room, and uh, we headed off on the Eurostar the next morning into Paris, where... I had no passport, and uh, just how he persuaded me to do that, I don't know. I don't think my wife ever forgave forgave him, but uh, a couple of fantastic days in Paris, and he seemed to know all about the cattle in Paris as much as he knew about the cattle everywhere else. And, uh, uh, great fun times, great fun times. I'll, I'll tell a wee tale while we're involved in Smithfield, because obviously the Smithfield came to an end, in sadly, but uh, um, I do remember the last uh, Smithfield show, at, uh, there was a kissed party, uh, and... Um, by this time, the, the security in Earl's Court had got a little bit more aggressive, should I say, to the fact that uh, all these farmers were in town and having a massive kiss party, which everybody will remember in 2004, which was, at the time, we all thought there was going to be a 2006 uh, Smithfield show, and uh, which never happened, sadly. And But uh, the, the, um, two or three hundred people in at a kiss party and all the... Uh, the security guards surrounded the, the place there and uh, your father said, right, Fraz, that's your job. Just go and sort these guys out for an hour because we've still got some partying to do. So he went in the kids' party, left me outside to deal with the chief security guard who was controlling a, a couple of hundred um, bloodthirsty guys who were looking for a, a decent scrap with some Scottish farmers. And uh, my job uh, under his direction was to keep these guys at bay until we'd all drunk enough and, and we could all leave peacefully and that was a great memory that I have of, uh, of Donald doing doing his delegation but um, smoothing things over that uh, could have easily gone very wrong and and, and also remember it at, at Smithfield show the uh, uh, he was very pally with uh, with the vet with uh, Michael Mims who sadly just died this last week actually and Michael Mims a great a great guy that everybody at Smithfield will know and Michael used to have a room downstairs in one of the floors in the middle of nowhere in Earl's Court, there were plenty of them and a uh, little room down there, Donald and I used to go down and uh, share a pork pie and some drums of whiskey with Michael Mims, who was from Leicestershire and uh, uh, great times, absolutely great times so I'm just sort of giving a little bit of my own uh, experience of of your father and how much I thought of him anyway let's mo move on uh, Donald, we don't want to get maudlin about this but in, in, in 2001 became another very sad day at Chapelton when uh, Foot and Mouth took over uh, the UK and uh, sadly took out a lot of the great genetics and a lot of those great genetics came from that southwest of Scotland um, area down there and uh, taking out uh, your, 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 your uncle Jim Goldie and of course uh, the farm there at Chapelton and some great genetics went uh, went by the way. Yeah, uh, you know, I, I think um, it, it's one of the sort of chapters of, of British livestock history that um, you know that, that, that we all need you know need to be aware of, but equally we do we don't sort of we don't open it with any great regularity. And, and as you say, uh, the word you know the, the, the Galway herd was obviously the, the line of Galway genetics was obviously broken, um, which had run for for several generations, um, and then obviously we, we lost the the shorthorn herd as well and then obviously the, the the whole commercial herd which um you know in and of itself you know was a huge job to, to restock that um and uh yeah it, it was it, it was pretty hellish really to, to be really honest with you Andy um 
And uh, I don't think a day that, that any cattle breeder, you know, would ever um, would ever really look upon with anything other than horror. You're right, indeed. But I mean, gathered himself by the shoe straps, as did did. As I said, your, your, your Uncle Jim as well, and, and, and uh, anyway, let's move forward and, and move on, and, and he did, and, and he took a decision to restock, and, and didn't restock the Herefords, and uh, didn't restock the Galloways, but restocked with uh, with Shorthorns and with Angus, and again, that was a commercial decision that Donald took. Yeah, so I think I think the Herefords uh, might actually, they left just before Foot and Mouth, and, and they were sold as a herd in lock, stock and barrel, as it were, and, and I'm afraid I can't quite remember where where it was they went. So, so they they'd, uh, departed um, just before Foot and Mouth arrived, and then, as you say, uh, the, the, the Galloway herd and the short herd and the commercial herd, they, they were totally wiped out. Um, and I think there was uh, there was probably not very much discussion involved in terms of whether the, the shorthorn herd was coming back or not. And um, in terms of genetics for that, a lot of them came from uh, North America, and uh, and that was the sort of main focus. And um, on the pedigree side, there was obviously a, a huge drive to to get the commercial herd back up and running because obviously that was that was cash flow and. And um, you know the, the staff and such like, uh, and, and uh, to to look after and to keep to keep paying for. So, um, that was the, the sort of initial driver was was commercial cows on the ground. And from a pedigree perspective, the the first round of embryos was was short horn based. And um, amongst those uh, amongst those commercial cows that came in were were sort of handful of of pedigree Angus cows uh, and uh, as as you do as a cattle breeder, you get sort of half interested in what they are and where they come from and which ones might be um, might be sort of more suited to the job than, than others. And um, uh, before you knew it, uh, Grandpa and Dad were, were sort of trotting off to, to buy an Angus bull. Um, and that's the, that's really where the, the, the Angus herd started and um, and then the, the sort of later round of uh, embryo transplant work we did um that that involved quite a number of anchors that again had, had come over the Atlantic, and um, really formed the, the foundation of the of where we are now with the Angus herd. And there would have been some Galloways across the Atlantic. I spoke to Peter Hunter Blair on on this uh, podcast before, and I know they brought some Galloways in from Canada. But I don't really think your your, your father had the heart to uh, to start a, a a Galloway herd from 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 nowhere, and maybe he didn't see it as as an economic uh, uh, viable proposition. Yeah, I think there was, um, you know, there was obviously a, a break in the a break in the line and. Uh, I think you know Dad's position was really he didn't he didn't want to restart a herd purely because of the history, and he 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 didn't certainly didn't want to to leave us with a, a herd of Galloways that we had purely because of the history. And um, I think you know times had changed considerably, and, and you know by that point the the, the Continentals were, were dominating the the industry, and. Um, I think you know they sort of stood back and and, and just asked themselves whether they thought that um, that restocking at the gallows was the best way forward at that time, and uh, I think they decided that particularly with a with a, a bit of Angus um, genetics having come in almost by accident, that um, you know maybe the Angus was a was a, a better way of, of safeguarding the future of the the farm and the family, and you know that that's where it ended up and. 
And I think, as I said when I spoke to you before, you know, whether whether that was the, the right decision, the wrong decision, um, you know, you know, maybe for for other people to comment on. But um, you know, it, I think there's a there's often or there are sometimes when when history has a, a line to be drawn underneath it, and I think that the time was right um, for for the galleries not to come back. And, uh, and and for us to move on to, to the next challenge, as it were. Fantastic. And and, and uh, a sensible idea, as you said, other people to judge on. But I'm going to mention a name it, while he was sourcing a lot of cattle uh, in Canada, a name of Rowley Bateman. And, and Rowley's a listener to this program, I know. And uh, he was instrumental, I think, in some of those, the sourcing of some of those genetics. Yeah, we were, um, you know, we were fortunate in that uh, Dad had been out to Canada. I think maybe even twice before Food and Mice, you know, in the in the sort of in the maybe four or five years before Food and Mice. So he had a, a sort of base level understanding of where he was going and what he was looking for. And um, as soon as he could, uh, as soon as he could, he hopped on a plane back out there, and he told the story of of going through a sort of filtering process of immigration and. You know, are you are you from Scotland? Are you from a, a food and affected area? Right down to the point of you know, you know, have you come off a farm? And he said he sort of ended up in an interview room and um, you know pulled out the, the the shiny new trainers, you know, with a, a, a full understanding of the of biosecurity, having run a, a sort of high health herd for for uh, for years. But uh, he got out back out there and saw a few people and, and saw. A few cows, and I think was you know hugely hugely appreciative of of breeders out there who allowed us to to flush cows that they wouldn't ordinarily have done, and um, you know that was the, the cattle world pulling together as it were. But it was you know it was Rowley who who was pulling the strings on the ground certainly from that point on, and um, you know he he pulled it all together, and uh, you know we really we couldn't have done it without his support. Another end of the program, as it were. So, um, yeah, Rolly was was a huge help uh, there, and then of course it was great to see Rolly when he came over, and um, he's been over a couple of times, and uh, you know I think you know for him to, to to see the product of of all the work he did for us in that in in that program. Um, must have been really quite rewarding. And, and you say the product, though it's something fairly simple. But I do know that uh, I think your father was quite proud that he held the uh, the, the record price for a short on bull and the record price for a short on female, both at the same time. So he didn't just get back in there as, as the biggers would do. You you took him to the top. Yeah, I think you know the that that sort of real commercial focus on the beef industry. Um, that that was quite clear in the genetics that that came in from Canada, and um, you know there were one bull in particular, Typhoon, who who was an embryo transplant. He um, for some people was maybe a bit too extreme, and um, he maybe had a, an ounce too much of the Belgian blue for some people. But um, when you put him across a, a sort of a framey shorthorn cow with good milk, um, you got a, a nice sort of moderate bull that just had that extra bit of fleshing um, that, that that he thought the the market really needed, and um, he just sort of caught caught the wave or, or caught a wave in the in the shorthorn breed at the time, and um, yeah, typhoon sons became became hugely desirable, and uh, you know as you say went on to. To, to sire, I think five or six champions, and um, and then of course holding the the, the top prize. I, I can't quite actually quite remember if, if the heifer Honeysuckle was a 
typhoon daughter she could well have been but uh, i would need to look back and check that i'm sure there'll be plenty of people that listen enthusiasts that listen to this podcast that would uh, give you the exact answer straight away so uh, you're forgiven for for, for that uh, misdemeanor and let's just move on to a little bit of other things that your your father did because it wasn't just a bit like his father and his grandfather it wasn't just about breeding cattle and and, and uh, we'll be going on to what you're doing commercially now in in a second or two but he he went on and one of his passions was uh, qms quality meat scotland and, and uh he ended up being in the chair of qms for six years and qms had you know they had a place to play in the scottish industry and still do and i think yeah i remember your father being very very passionate about that in that that institution yeah, I think you know he was he was always keen to get off farm and be involved in things. Um, I think that the longest running one, Abby, was was probably uh, West Cumberland Farmers or WCS. That I think started life as a as a sort of farmers cooperative or a, or and maybe more similar to a sort of buying group um, now, but had developed into to, to a, a limited company and then I think probably PLC and. Um, you know, he was he was still chair of WCF when he passed away, and, and uh, but that you know, to, to to sit on there for for I think several decades was um, you know that was something he, he hugely enjoyed, um, and then as you say uh, in QMS he uh, he did I think two two terms maybe slightly more, and um, yeah he 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 loved doing. Uh, the work there to to, to to really just try and bring beef onto to more people's or bring Scotch beef onto more people's plates and and um, I mean they, they had they had plenty of fun with uh, I think it, he was at the helm when um, they managed to, to get beef exports back into into France and um, and that was obviously a, a BSC hangover that the that the French had held on to and um, yeah I, I I know that the trips to um, the trips to Buku's door and such like uh, to, to promote the to promote Scotch beef out there were were a huge amount of fun, but there was a huge amount of hard work involved. And um, yeah, I think it was a a period when um, it, it was something he enjoyed hugely. And um, yeah, he was he was he was quite happy to hang up his his hat at the end of the day, as it were, on that. Um, but you know, certainly times that he looked back on very fondly. Yeah, and, and he came over that he enjoyed doing all these roles. That's the thing, and it wasn't uh, wasn't he wasn't the stern one at the top. He enjoyed doing the roles, and I think that sort of when you're trying to promote something, it, a you, it, you could see he believed in what, what he was doing, and and b that uh, absolutely enjoyed doing that. And as you said, putting a bit back to the industry and trying to promote, or as QMS does, to promote uh, Scottish uh, beef and lamb for that matter to the uh, the world. And he was also involved in. NFU and I seem to remember the NFU. There was a story about them, uh, the Irish beef coming into the country. There, he got involved in that one too, in his diplomatic way. Yeah, uh, and it's, it's not a story I knew sort of a huge amount about Andy, but it, um, you know, there was obviously a pretty significant disagreement that came to head uh, in in Port Patrick or Stura, and um, I think there was there was plenty of of sort of heated. Uh, or, well, he did actions almost as it were, and um, yeah, I, I think that that diplomacy was um, was really quite important then, just to, to prevent things boiling over. Well, I heard they were throwing Irish beef into the sea, and and uh, he he uh, he went down there and said, "Well, don't chuck that away. It's too good to throw away." And and uh, and, and and persuaded the everybody to go home and 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 have the dinner. I think that's kind of how I, I I saw Donald dealt with it. 
Yeah, as I, as I say, it's 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 not an episode I know a huge amount about, but um, it was certainly you know it, it was a flashpoint in his time in um, in the sort of Agrops with politics in inverted commas. <laughs> And and he was a member of he was a board member of the SRUC, of course, and the was the SAC and and uh, and and Mordenham he was involved in as well, and and you know there, there were a, a lot of uh, businesses that uh, that he, that he he stuck he gave his expertise to uh, when required, and without without wanting anything in return. Yeah, I think you know he was particularly interested in in Morden and that. Um, you know the the the, the glimpse I I would get into that annually was uh, was at the Highland Show, and I think it, you know it just it comes back to that uh, sort of wanting what's best for the industry and, and and you know any advances in animal health that was you know certainly something that um, that he was hugely keen on um, animal health and biosecurity and, and and doing everything possible and, and, and you know putting a considerable amount of effort and time. Into uh, you know into having as clean a herd as as you possibly could do, um, and yeah, that sort of shone through from from the breeding right through to his involvement in in Morden and uh, and SAC or FRUC. Really, and of course, you said the biosecurity as well through the through his experiences with the the foot and mouth that we mentioned, and 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 your father was recognised with an OBE, um, which is a great accolade to have in in the family. I think your your grandfather had something similar, but that's uh, yeah, it's nice to be recognised with that. Yeah, James Grandma James, he uh, he received an OBE in uh, goodness knows when. I, 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 again, I should know Andy, but. He received an OBE um, really quite a while ago, and uh, I, I remember Dad telling the story that, that you got to drive in the main gate of uh, Buckingham Palace in through the arch, and uh, and you got out of your own car in the courtyard, um, which uh, I think he was there with with Auntie Judy and Auntie Kay uh, and uh, uh, Judy McGowan and, and uh, Kay Goldie, but uh, those those times have changed. I don't think anybody will be driving through that arch anytime soon. <laughs> Fair enough. And you mentioned your Auntie Judy and your Auntie Kay, and they both, as you said, Judy married into Finley McGowan and uh, sadly recently died as well. And 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 um and Kay married uh, Jim Goldie. And I mean they they, uh, they were between them the the biggers were in those they say they say behind every good man's a good woman. And I think both both those places would admit that uh, they were as much a powerful force maybe as your father was in in uh, in guiding the beef industry forward into the to the the millennium yeah we um you know it, it w- what is lovely about it as a family is that um we're all doing different things and uh and nobody at any point is, is head to head as it were and um you know the the, the mcgarrens and the goldies have been of extraordinary support to, to us in the last couple of years um you know on on various things whether it's breeding or, or technicality and such like and you know you know without that support um you know, even if it was just knowing they were at the end of the phone, has been a, a huge support to us, and um, we're just we're so lucky to to have a, a family that's just so immersed in in cattle breeding and, and farming around us. You know, to 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 help us keep going really. When uh, when when Dad passed away, yeah, and that's great—not just that support, but of course they're both uh, in cattle breeding families at the very top of the game in their own rights. And then going to yourselves, then uh, there's your brother Jamie, who doesn't look like he's going to be able to manage to catch us because I know he's carving and lambing and doing. Well, it, would I say he's running everything at home now, uh, Duncan, or are you still get involved? 
I'd say he's he's running most of it. Uh, I'm I'm one day a week at home, so uh, still sort of involved uh, on on that basis. But uh, four days sitting in an office, unfortunately. But uh, yeah, he's he's got the the reins at home mostly, and um, yeah, it, it's you know the, the season's come come round, and uh, we are I would say probably somewhere between two thirds and three quarters of the way through calving, and uh, t- touch wood. It's going well, and the sun's now shining. It wasn't shining two weeks ago, but uh, yeah, we're um, we're just getting warmed up, and uh, last year's calves um, are just coming forward, and 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 tools uh, and such like will be getting turned out, and ho- hopefully there'll be a few customers around for them, and tools uh, back out come June, and uh, we start again. Tell us a little bit more about what, what you do there at, at Chabotin and what the logistics are, you know, cattle numbers, sheep numbers now. The two pedigree herds are, are, are sitting somewhere between sort of 60 and 70 cows each um, and then a, a sort of healthy drove of heifers coming through each year to, just to, to try and keep a bit of genetic progress rolling on um, and uh, we're trying I think quite hard to, to, to use homebred bulls where we can just you know bulls that we know the history of uh, and um, Neil McGowan talked in, in his Nuffield about um, the sort of the, the far lap theory that, that that he put forward, and, and this notion that you know we weren't trying to to breed something because it had a, an ounce of class, you know, four generations back. We were we were trying to, in his words, stack the pedigree with midfield finishers, and and I think that the beauty of of using your own bulls is that is that you can do that. You can you you can know everything about every every female in that pedigree, and um, and really pick the ones that that you think are going to stand the test of time. So. So that's what we're, we're working with, really, in in, in both uh, herds. But I would say probably more the shorthorns and the Anguses. Um, we've uh, we've got a, a shorthorn bull, uh, Mayfield Powerplay, who, who's an embryo, or, what, or he, he's an embryo, and um, you know you, you go back a few generations, and, and he's he's heading into similar genetics that that we brought across the Atlantic in 2001-2002. So, um, so that's quite exciting, and then. Uh, in terms of the Anguses, uh, we're using a couple of uh, Fordal bulls um, and uh, and also a, a couple of homebred Angus bulls, a story you might quite like, Andy. Um, Alistair Houston at Gretna House, who um, sadly passed away not too long ago as well, but um, he, he and Dad got on very well and uh, there was always a, a leg pull here and there. And uh, we had a, a couple of Robert and Elysium Draws that um, we'd used a few a couple of years ago, and, and they just didn't really click with with our cows. And uh, we had two or three left in the tank. And um, I, I don't know Harry, but but uh, Ali had, had somehow worked out that we had some, and and, and he sort of appeared on text on Dad's phone and and wondered if he could buy them. And Dad said, "Of course you can't buy them. That's you know they're they're, they're priceless. You can't buy them at all." I said, but but we can swap them for some Gretna House blacksmith. Okay. Um, so so we did a, a little trade with Ali, and um, I think he didn't really get anything, and we got two stock bulls. So <laughs> so that was a that was a bit of a winner. Um, and yeah, those those two stock bulls are are running out at the moment, and um, obviously that they're pretty genetically close to each other. So we're uh, we've used both of them in in the commercial herd a bit and um yeah just just trying to trying to push some strong uh, 
some strong growth figures into to, to some of these cows. And um, yeah, just again, just keep the keep the focus on the commercial. Sure, and Blacksmith was a great commercial bull, but a great pedigree bull as well, wasn't he? And done a lot in the breed. And you say the commercials, what sort of numbers of commercial cows do you run there? Because you run a fairly fairly big spread. Yeah, the um, I think there were somewhere in the region of 350 cows total to, to calve this year, um, or this spring, as it were. So. Um, the, the the commercial herds operate in somewhere somewhere around about 230 240 cows, and um, and they're all they're all homebred. The, the only the only animals on the farm that, that don't carry our our um, um, herd prefix or, uh, or or UK number at the beginning um, are uh, are a couple of ha- couple of pedigree stock bulls. Okay. Every every female on the farm uh, is homebred was born here, and that's something we're hugely proud of. Um, and you know, I think if you if you're trying to sell pedigree bulls with a with a commercial mindset, it it really helps if you can uh, really helps if, if you can use them yourself in a, a commercial environment and, and prove to yourself that that you're that you're picking the right ones. Sure, sure. And look back down the pedigree, and your name's all the way down the bottom the bottom line there. And, and you know, it's something everybody would be proud of, I think. And let's just move on to yourselves and and your sister actually, because Rachel. Um, was uh, was working away, I think, when your father passed away. But then she took it on herself to do some work for the uh, RSABI, and um, and uh, she went and raised a bit of money. Yeah, she she did extraordinarily well. Um, she, I think, you know, she lives out in Greece, and, and I'm still a little bit distant from from things, and, and decided that she was going to ha- have a go at a, a running challenge. I think it was a it was a hundred kilometers in a month. Um, and um, you know, it, it not a not a mean feat it generally, but to, to do it in the, the Greek heat um, and indeed you know sort of perched on the on the side of a hill um, where there wasn't much flat country at all. So she, she put herself through that, which was was incredible, and um, and, and garnered a huge amount of support and, and generated a, a huge amount of money for for RSABI and. Um, yeah, she, you know, she did fantastically with that. Something your father would have been proud of, of course. And I'm going to move on to another subject your father and I had conversations about because I've discussed rugby matches with him in the past and uh, and you've got rugby history in your family too. And uh, not everybody on this podcast is a rugby fan, but I am and it's my podcast. So we can talk about this. Uh, your your uncle, Alistair Bigger, I think, uh, played for Scotland. Yeah, so uh, Alistair, I think, is a, would be a cousin of dad. So, so sort of another jump across from from us um, and uh, yeah he obviously did, did very well um, in his rugby playing days and then uh, Mike another cousin um, went on to I think play for the Lions so yeah there's, there's a bit of rugby genetics there um, although as I say a, a cousin it's, it's, it's a little bit more diluted from us um, <laughs> you're not pulling on and, your boots uh, not pulling on your boots as we speak uh, Duncan for next for, you know, I, I, I hung up my boots a few years ago and uh, <laughs> but yeah, no, Dad was Dad was you know a, a keen follower of of Scottish rugby, um, you know the, the the dark days of the of the nineties as it were, um, were, were well the bright light of the nineties and then maybe the dark days of the, the early two thousands, um, you know he he was still keen to still keen to to, to get to Murrayfield and um, you know no, no matter how much he enjoyed his castle uh, and enjoyed the people of Castle. Um, when it got to sort of three o'clock on the Saturday of the uh, of the of Sterling Bull Fields in February, 
he would sort of miraculously disappear to, to find a television somewhere, particularly if it was a Calcutta Cup game. <laughs> I remember sitting in Paris with him. In fact, I, I remember myself going to the... Uh, we were in Paris and we are going to the England-France uh, game and, and your father said, uh, I said, would you come along? He said, no, I'm not going to see England getting thrashed, and we did too, but uh, he would have he come along to, to watch that, but uh, having some great fun watching some of the games and singing ridiculous rugby songs in, in bars in, in, in parts of Paris that I didn't know existed until he told me about them in the rugby circles. And as he said, your, 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 your cousin, Mike, your, your uncle cousin, second cousin, whatever you call him, Mike, was, uh, was a, a great player for the Lions. So uh, superb. And there's one other bigger as well that people will be thinking about. And I remember asking your dad about this guy. And I got called Dan Bigger, who now plays for, for Wales. And I said, was he a relation? At the time, he was quite proud to say, well, yeah, he probably is because the biggers are, are everywhere. But uh, I think since then, you've disclaimed him a little bit, uh, Duncan. No, I, I, I don't. There's no nobody's managed to work out a connection. Um, uh, so no, I don't think we can. I don't think we can claim a, a connection to, to cousin Dan as I once referred to him. I think. Um, I think. I, I sort of made one or two disparaging remarks about Scotland team a few months ago, and, and I think that sort of sealed the fate that he would no longer be cousin Dan. He's no longer welcome back at Chapelton. Well, there you go. It's uh, it's great to 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 chat away from the the Catlin. and and just just mentioning uh, you said overseas and and. Uh, uh, James's brother, I think, uh, Willie, we're talking about cousins here again, William or Billy flew in the RAF and and, uh, and another brother, Andrew, would I be right, that uh, flew in the war as well. It's, it's a lot of these beggars have gone around about the place. Yeah, well, you know, obviously, Grandpa James, um, you know, that, that generation fell straight into the, straight into the, the second war. Um, as I say, he, he was at home with a pitchfork um, and he had two brothers um, who were uh, he had three brothers who were who were away. Um, as you say, Billy was uh, he was flying. Um, Andrew, I think, spent a, a, a large proportion of the of the war as a as a as a prisoner of war. Um, and uh, Kenneth, I think, would would spend some time, um, or perhaps was too young. Can't remember, um, but he um, he actually ended up back then, near home running a, a a feed business that actually ultimately became or became part of West Cumberland Farmers that, that Dad was was chairman of, um, and, and and that feed business was based just at the Weeti, so you know sort of three four miles down the valley, not far away at all. Okay, okay. And you mentioned to me when we spoke the other day that you just had a cousin visiting, and uh, imagine they prop up all over the place, and uh, he came over and wanted to know all his history. So you've done a little bit of uh, of research yourself. Yeah, the, the, the combination of of, of yeah, you being quite keen to, to talk about things, um, and actually a, a you know a relation from from a, a distant pastor that were coming to visit. Um, and sort of spurned us to do a bit more homework, and, and uh, you know you often find that those who've, who've ended up furthest from the from the tree are, are those that know most about uh, where they've come from, which is you know a sort of it's a, it's almost a slight embarrassment really. Um, so yeah, that uh, you know when you, you can open an old sort of photo album or, or sort of sketches of a family tree, and um, you, you've got someone who's who's spend a huge amount of time in the States and they're so hugely interested in, in the family tree because they because they feel distant from it. So, yeah, it's, it's just so good to, 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 to open your eyes and ears to, to those who are a bit older than you. And, and as you say, the, the, the driver of our top lines and tails was to, to try and record some of the, 
the sort of history that um, you know can can disappear in an instant. You're right, and, and and you said your father was one of fourteen cousins, and I'm sure they'll all come knocking on your door looking for this information. So hopefully, that we have covered quite a bit of ground. As I said, you know, of um, the top of the St. Donald was a man I I had utmost respect for and a lot of people and sadly taken from us uh, too young a lot of people had so much respect for and, and um i really appreciate you just taking the time really to relive a little bit of that history duncan and i'm sorry james can't join us but james i'm sure you're listening in and, and uh, getting on with your carving and uh, it's brilliant that you guys will would have, have given me some some more insight into into such a great man well no and thanks for your insight too andy that you know the the stories of uh, of trips to Paris minus a passport and and uh, with the benefit of a lot of wine. These things, these are things that are new to us as well. So, um, no, thank you very much. You'll be thankful that I didn't have. I think one of your father's best friends was was a guy. Is a guy called uh, Ken Fletcher, and Ken Fletcher, of course, is be listening in. And uh, Fletcher's given me loads of stories about that time. Some again un, oh, unrepeatable, but uh, you know, Fletcher like an uncle, I'm sure, and and. Um, he, he, there's a lot of yeah. lot of stories here that can't be told, which is, uh, is that's even better. Yeah, and I, I mean a, a huge, you know, outside of farming, a, a huge passion of dad's was was fishing, and um, you know it, there was a spell when when any opportunity to, to disappear and, and spend a few hours on a, a river bank, um, you know that that was what he would choose to do with his time, and um, you know Fletch and the rest of that sort of fishing team were were great pals and they would disappear off up the west coast for a week a year and um have an absolute ball and um you know there were there were many years when uh, when uh, Kenny would be down for for Dumfries show and indeed also the sort of heyday of the galleries we've spoken about down to, to report on the sales and um I don't think there was a great deal of sleep had in in, in those weeks <laughs> to be perfectly honest. And I obviously must mention your, your mother, your mum, Emma, as well. And and um, just please just send her very best. And I hope we've done uh, we've done Donald some justice on on chatting about him on uh, on top lines and tales this this week. Yeah, she was um, she was really pleased to hear that uh, you know that, that you'd approached me at uh, Sterling in February and that you, you were quite keen to do something. And uh, yeah, it, you know you know we. There's only a sort of limited amount that, that we can cover, as it were. But uh, you know, if we can even just convey a sort of token of of uh, of who Dad was and, and, and sort of what he stood for, then um, yeah, then hopefully we're um, we're doing a, a good deed, as it were. Well, Duncan, I really appreciate you chatting to us on Top Lines and Tales. And as I said, it's it's a very passionate one uh, for me and a longer longer episode than normal because uh, a man I enjoy talking about and a man I enjoy his company. And, and Duncan, I've enjoyed your company uh, today. Well, thanks very much, Andy. Um, it's been a, been a pleasure to speak to you. Thanks very much. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Top Lines and Tales, your weekly livestock podcast. And as always, we'd like to thank our sponsors, Harbro, for their continued support. At this time of year, the weather is starting to pick up at last, and of course, turning out of those cattle is on the horizon. So now might be a time to think about getting magnesium buckets into stock there. And don't forget that Harbro's Triple Mag buckets are fantastic quality with multiple sources of magnesium to ensure your cows are covered against the risk of grass staggers. So uh, contact your local representative or find a little bit more about Harbro on the internet. And while you're on the internet, don't forget to look at our Top Lines and Tails Facebook page where you'll find 
more information and photographs to back up this and previous episodes.